you here this morning, and Merry Christmas as we get into this season. We're going to sing some Christmas music this morning. Woohoo! Yay! <laughs> all right, all right. Let's start off by singing this great song. It's a, it's a brand new song, just came out a few hundred years ago called Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Come on, let's stand and sing. <laughs> Oh, the new 
seated. When we look at the unreached people groups in our part of the world and in most of the world, their preference to learn is through stories, it's through orality. You come in with God's stories and you're seeing His Spirit changing lives. I've seen it. I've told stories and they listen and they love it and they begin to ask us questions. And if God opens the door to where we can continue to tell them more and more stories. And out of that ministry, we began to see we needed more people to do this ministry. And where are we gonna get them? We wanted the people that we were training to train other people. And so we began teaching in the pastor's schools and the, the student pastors were excited about it. They said it's something that we use, it's applicable, it works. They already speak the language, they wear the same clothes, they eat the same food. All we have to do is help them to understand methods and ways that they can reach their people. The people that we're training now are the product of missionaries who came before me. They accepted Christ under these missionaries. We're training them in schools that IMB Money helped to fund, to build. It's an amazing thing. You can pray, keep the mission going. You can give, keeps the mission going. And you can go. Look at me. I used to sell tire supplies. <laughs> Here I am teaching people how to tell stories. <laughs> Thanks for praying and giving and come on over. We're in a season of prayer for world missions, and as we pray, we also give. And I love that video. He said, you can pray, you can give, you can go. It doesn't matter even if you're a, a tire salesman. You can be a part of what God is doing to take the gospel to the nations. And so as we give to our world missions offering, we've set a goal as a church of 27,000, and we're getting closer to that. We're right a little bit over 18,000. So I would ask you to pray uh, for world missions, and then give. And I want you to make sure that this is one of the, the biggest gifts that you give this Christmas season as we celebrate our God leaving heaven, coming to earth on a rescue mission to save us. So welcome to First Baptist Church. We're so glad that you're here. If this is your first time here today, we're glad that you are here. We'd love to get to know you. And one of the ways that we do that is through the guest card that's located in front of you. If you can take one of those out and fill it out for us, at the end of the service, you just go to the Welcome Center to your left. Drop that off there with our lead pastor, Dr. Cox, or you can drop it in the black box there. And then we have a small gift for you coming and being a part of our service this morning. We wanna take a moment to pray 
as we continue to worship. So would you just bow your heads with me for a moment? And we're just going to take a moment to be silent, pray to the Lord, and then I'll close this out as we continue to worship. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity to gather as your people here at First Baptist. And Lord, as we gather today, Lord, we don't want this to just be another Sunday. Uh, Lord, we're not here to check a box. Uh, We want to encounter the God of the universe and express to him our heart's affection. Express to him the glory, God, the glory that you are due. Father, may you be pleased with our worship. We thank you for this opportunity to gather in your name. Amen. All right, let's have a little fun. Let's stand up and sing together. Uh, Away in a manger, this is a nice little medley called It's Christmas.
that Jesus Christ is born. It's Christmas, the angels are singing, and I know the Savior is born. Yes, it's Christmas. The bells are ringing, and I feel like shouting, joy to the world, joy to the world, joy to the Isn't that fun? Hey, let's try that again. I was on the wrong key. I threw, I threw everybody off, didn't I? Which is the story of my life. Christmas 
continue to sing. Lord, I pray that you'll bless this time. You guys sing this with me. Joyful, joyful, we adore thee, God of glory, Lord of love, hearts unfold like flowers before thee, opening to the sun above, melt the clouds of sin and sadness, drive the doubt of dark away, giver of gladness fill us with the light of day rejoice rejoice Emmanuel your love has come here to dwell Surround thee, earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. Field and forest, vale and mountain, flowery meadow, flashing sea. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. 
the morning stars begin. Father, love is reigning o'er us. Brother, love binds man to man. Ever singing, march thee onward. Victors in the midst of strife. Joyful music leads us onward in the triumph song of life. Thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers this morning, our songs of worship. May you be glorified in all that we sing and say and do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, musicians, for leading us in worship. Good morning, everyone. If you uh, were not here last night, I encourage you to come tonight at 6 o'clock uh, to hear the choir and orchestra and children's choir. I uh, did a great job uh, leading us in worship at Christmas last night at 6, and it'll be repeated tonight at 6. Look forward to that. I'm sharing a series of sermons on prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And we're looking at about 40 different prophecies over this seven-week series that predict the coming of the Messiah, the Deliverer, the Savior, the King, and they're fulfilled in Jesus. And as we celebrate Christmas, this helps us to see that His coming was predicted and planned thousands of years before it happened. That reassures us that God has a plan for our lives and our world as well. And this helps us to establish the reliability of the Bible. This is one reason we believe the Bible's true. You can stake your life on it because God predicted things thousands of years before they happened. Now, so far in these prophecies that we've looked at, they've been primarily positive, right? We've learned that uh, a great king is coming who'll rule the world in justice. We've learned that uh, he will crush the head of evil. We learned that he'll preach good news, but now comes the curveball. You would expect that everybody's going to be happy when this one comes, right? No, he is not going to be well received, and we're going to see today five predictions about his rejection and betrayal. The first three of these are parallels. That is, I've shared with you there are different types of prophecy, direct prophecy, dual fulfillment, and then just parallels. These first three are parallels, and skeptics might say there's, these are just coincidences, but they're pretty powerful coincidences. These last two are direct prophecies. So let's look at these five predictions today. Number one, the Old Testament says that the Messiah will be rejected. Read to you Psalm chapter 8, 118, verses 22 and 23. The stone... The builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, so that's uh, not a direct prediction. That's written in the past tense. It's written Psalms about whoever's writing this is talking about rejection. It probably was David. David was, King David was rejected. Remember when Samuel was sent to anoint one of the sons of Jesse as king? And he had seven sons, and he went through all seven of them. And uh, he said, are these all the sons you got? And he said, well, I got the, the youngest is out tending the sheep, but I'm, surely I didn't think you wanted him. 
And that was David, and he was a king. He was rejected. And then when he said he could defeat Goliath, you can't do that. He was rejected. Saul tried to kill him. He was rejected. The ten tribes of the north didn't receive him as king. So David was sort of like this, the stone the builders rejected. And then he became the cornerstone. But it's also a parallel to the son of David. And so when Jesus was on earth, in Matthew 21, he told a parable, a story. And here's the story. He said there was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, and he hired it out to some local farmers, some tenants. And when harvest time came, he sent one of his servants to collect his share of the fruit. And they beat him. He sent a second servant, and they killed him. He sent a third, and they stoned him. And finally, Jesus said he sent his son, thinking, surely they'll respect my son. And they said, he's the heir we kill him, we'll probably get the vineyard. And they killed the son also. And at the end of that parable, Jesus quotes these verses from Psalm 118. Let me read them to you in Matthew 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Jesus quotes Psalm 118 and applies it to himself. He predicts his own rejection. He joins what the Old Testament says and he predicts it. And sure enough, Jesus was rejected so that people cried out, crucify him, crucify him. After Jesus ascended to heaven, Peter and John healed a man in the temple. And the Sanhedrin called them in and questioned them, why'd you do this? And here's what Peter's response was. I'm reading to you Acts chapter 4, verses 10 through 11. Know this, you and all the people of Israel, it's by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone, and salvation is found in no other name. Jesus is the Messiah who, just as the Old Testament said, was rejected. And really, we've all fulfilled this prophecy. Every one of us, the Bible says, has gone our own way, not completely obeyed the Messiah. We've all rejected him and have turned away from him. Let's go to the second of these Old Testament prophecies. Number two, the Messiah will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver will be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Zechariah chapter 11 verses 12 and 13. I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. So they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them to the potter at the house of the Lord. Again, this is a parallel. It's talking about Zechariah's experience. If you read this chapter, Zechariah tried to pastor or shepherd, the word means the same thing, the people of Israel. There were corrupt leaders. He tried to reform the leadership and pastor them, and they rejected him, and he resigned, and he said, look, if you want to pay me, fine. If not, for the work that I've done, they paid him what he considered an insulting 
amount of money, 30 pieces of silver, and God said to him, throw it to the potter. That's the Old Testament story. But there's an amazing parallel in the New Testament in the rejection of the Messiah. And so in Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 and 15, it says that Judas, one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. And let me read to you then from chapter 27 of Matthew, verses 3 through 10. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I've sinned, he said, for I've betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left, and then he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest picked up the coins and said, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. Now they got a conscience. They never, you know, anyway, got a conscience now. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field, just like it said in Zechariah, as a burial place for foreigners. That is why it's been called the field of blood to this day. Then what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah also referred to this, they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price set on him by the people of Israel, and they used them to buy the potter's field as the Lord commanded me. Don't you see that amazing parallel? Share with you a third prophecy of the Messiah. The Messiah will be portrayed by a close friend who eats bread with him. Psalm chapter 41, verse 9 says, Even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread, has turned against me. So again, this is a parallel. It's describing somebody, probably David again, who wrote that psalm, who is expressing how he had been betrayed by a close friend in his life. That happened with Ahithophel and some others in his life. But there's an amazing parallel in the New Testament that John refers to in John chapter 13, um, <clears throat> beginning at uh, verse 18. Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room the night before he died. They're eating the Passover meal. And he says, I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. And then he quotes the verse we just read from Psalms. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Do you hear the purpose of these prophecies and why Jesus is repeating them before it happens? He repeats that Old Testament prophecy before it happens that you might believe in him. Well, then the disciples asked, well, Lord, who is it? Somebody's going to betray you? Who is it? In John uh, chapter 3. 13 down in verse 25, leaning back against Jesus, John asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And as soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. Do you see that amazing parallel? Now, number four is not a parallel like these first three, 
It's not a, a, a comparison of something that happened in the Old Testament. Here's a direct prophecy. Number four is, the Messiah's followers will desert him. In Zechariah chapter 13, uh, verse 7, in Zechariah uh, 13, the, the context, it's saying, if you read the verses before, on that day a fountain of cleansing will be opened. On that day, it's speaking of the day when God is going to save his people, and it says in the middle of verse 7, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. So the prophecy is when the shepherd, the shepherd is another title in Zechariah for the Messiah. You'll see those words used interchangeably. The shepherd or the Messiah will be stricken, and when he's stricken, the sheep, the followers, will be scattered. And so in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31 Jesus quotes this verse from Zechariah again in the upper room. They've just had the Passover meal. And Jesus said to them, Matthew 26, 31, This very night you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. Jesus quotes this and, and adds his prediction to that prediction. And says, but after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. He's already predicting his resurrection. Later that night, they got the Garden of Gethsemane. They were praying. Uh, Judas and the, the guard came to arrest Jesus. Peter, who had said, I'll never, I won't do it. All the rest of them may, but I won't. Peter drew his sword to try to defend him, but when he saw that Jesus would not resist, would not fight, they didn't know what to do, and the Bible says that they everyone scattered just as this passage said. Got one more, number five. This one will blow your mind. So if your spouse is falling asleep, this is the time to look over and say, this is the big one, this is mind-blowing, wake up. Okay? Now, this one is a number puzzle. You like number puzzles? Some of you maybe do the number puzzles. This is a number puzzle. You got to think a little bit. You got to stick with me to get this one, okay? Here it is. Number five. The Messiah will come 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem, and then he'll be killed. This is one of the most amazing prophecies in the Old Testament. It gives a time period for when the Messiah will come and predicts his death. This ought to blow your mind. Now, you got to follow it. It's a number puzzle. So, the con we're going to read in Daniel chapter 9, beginning at verse 24. But before we do, let me give you the context. The context is that Daniel, who's writing this, when he was a young man, probably a teenager, was taken into exile from Israel to Babylon. You know that story? Uh, God allowed the nation to be destroyed and he was taken. Jeremiah predicted that the exile would last 70 years. Now Daniel 9 verse 1 says it's been almost 70 years. So now Daniel is an old man in his 80s, almost 90, and he's praying to God, God, Jeremiah said this exile would only last 70 years. It's about time for it to end. God, are you going to let us go back? And he's praying about that. You can read it in the chapter in Daniel 9. 
And so God says to him, and, and here's the reason the exile lasted 70 years. You can see it on this chart. It says it in 2 Chronicles that the people had failed to observe the Sabbath year 70 times. In the book of Leviticus, God had said every seventh year, every week of years, get that concept, a week of years is seven years. Every week of years, you're not to plant anything. You're to let the land lay fallow. It'll be a Sabbath, and the land can rest. And they didn't do that for 490 years. They disobeyed God. So God said when he punishes the people, all right, the land is going to get its Sabbath. It's going to get 70 of these back to back because 70 times 7, you didn't do it 490 years. And so now for 70 years, it's going to be a Sabbath. You get the concept? So based on that, 490 years before the exile, 70 years of the exile, now what he's going to predict in these verses is God's going to wrap up his plan in the next 490 years. Another 70 uh, weeks of years. You get the idea? Okay, let's look at Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, with that context. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. Seventy sevens are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. So God says, in the next 490 years, or 70 times 7, I'm going to accomplish those things. I'm going to accomplish much of my plan of salvation in those times. You got it? So here's the prediction. Know and understand this, verse 25. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, until the anointed one, that's the Messiah, right? The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. If you, add, if you add those together, we'll show you the next uh, chart here, uh, then it will be 483 years. You say, what happened to the last seven? That's reserved for the end time. I don't have time to talk about that now. But for right now, he says, from the time that you decree to rebuild Jerusalem until the Messiah comes will be 483 years, right? Seven times seven plus 63 times seven. So now we got to decide when was the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. There are two candidates for the beginning date. In the book of Ezra, chapter 7, in 458 B.C., Ezra was given the command to rebuild Jerusalem. It didn't start then. So the other candidate is in 445 B.C., Nehemiah. You remember in the book of Nehemiah? Nehemiah heard, oh, I thought it had already been rebuilt. No, he got word it hadn't been. Oh, and he cries and weeps, and he gets permission to rebuild. So one of those two is the beginning date. If you take Ezra's date, 458 B.C., Ezra 7, and count 483 years, you get 26 A.D., which in the chronology of most New Testament chronologies is the day when Jesus, the year when Jesus entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. That ought to just blow your mind. God predicted the timing. Now, there, there's some ambiguity. If you use the other date, 445 B.C., you come up with 38 A.D., which seems a little bit long, but some people would say that they used a lunar year instead of the, the solar year, and it comes out to 33 A.D. So there's a couple of ways, but even with the broadest parameters, the Bible specifically says that the Messiah is going to come from about 26 to 38 A.D., 
And that's when Jesus came. Who else was born in Bethlehem and rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and came during that time period? No one. Don't you see how God has given us these amazing clues about his coming, even to the timing of when it's going to happen? There's even more in the next verse. Verse 26 says, After the 62 sevens, the last part of that 483 years, the anointed one, the Messiah, will be put to death. Do you hear this direct, specific prediction that goes against all logic that this king that everybody should love is going to be killed? That's what Daniel said, or God said to Daniel. And then it says in the last part of verse 26, And the people of the ruler will come and will destroy the city and the sanctuary. And in 70 AD, 40 years or so after Jesus came, the Romans came in and did exactly that. They leveled the city of Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. Exactly what Daniel 9.26 said. It said he'll come 483 years after the decree to rebuild Jerusalem. And then after he comes, he will die. And then the city and the temple will be destroyed again. That's exactly what happened. You know what you ought to say? Here's what you ought to say. Wow! Wow! God's amazing in what he's put into Scripture. I want to close by telling you a story. I want to tell you a story of a guy named Ralph Muncaster. He grew up in a little town in New Jersey. And he went to Sunday school when he was a kid. But he said from his very earliest age, he was a skeptic. He just didn't believe those Bible stories. His Sunday school teacher told him that Methuselah was the oldest person ever lived, and he lived 900 years. And Ralph, in Sunday school, when he was a kid, said, don't you love smart aleck kids in Sunday school? He said, when I grow up, I'm going to write a book and say that somebody lived to 1,000 years, and then I'll have the world record. He, he was just skeptical, even as a kid. He says that when he graduated from high school, he had a summer job, summer before he went off to the University of Colorado to engineering school. He had a summer job working at the Richmond Ice Cream Factory, and he and his best friend Rob worked the night shift, and it was their job to load the ice cream orders onto trucks in the middle of the night that would go out the next morning. Just the two of them in this huge freezer below 60 degrees below zero, and that's pretty cold, and so they would want to finish that job quickly, and then they could take a break and get out in the warmth for a little bit. And he said, so they, like teenage guys might do, tried to set, break their record every time they made a run. And so they, would, they had a 500-pound cart, and they loaded ice cream and all the flavors and the big things on it. And they ran through one on one side pushing, one on the other side pushing like a bobsled team, you know. And they're pushing it through this huge freezer, and they're trying to shave seconds off their time from the stopwatch to get to the truck and get it in there. And he says, one time, we were on a world record pace for us, and we were throwing that those 100 pounds of ice cream on that 500-pound cart, and we were pushing, and we rounded the last curve, and as we rounded the last curve, it tipped. The 500-pound cart with hundreds of pounds of ice cream, he said, I saw it in slow motion, and he said it went over, and Ralph fell, and it was coming right down on his head, and then his head disappeared under that ice cream. And he said, I knew he was dead. But one of those tubs, you know, like they have at Baskin-Robbins, one of those tubs had wedged and had just barely protected his head 
His head was beside that tub, and he was unharmed. He says they went outside on the loading dock where they went to warm up every time and lay on cardboard looking up at the sky. And Ralph said, I, I said to Rob, Rob, you nearly died. He said, I know. He said, what do you think would have happened if you died? He said, nothing. I'd have been gone. And he said, no, I mean, wh wh where would you go? What would you be? And he said, ain't nothing. When you're dead, you're dead, you're gone. He said, but they say in church, those church people say there's a heaven and a hell. Rob said, there's no heaven, there's no hell. He said, but what if those church people are right, Rob? What if there is life after death? He said, there's nothing. So Ralph went off to college, studied engineering and statistics, and he left his faith completely. He said, for the next 10 years, I became a Bible-bashing atheist. Uh, I just enjoyed tearing other people's faith down. And he said, then one day at a business lunch, there was this guy, and he calmly sort of challenged some of my criticisms and said, you really haven't studied the Bible and what you're criticizing. Ralph took that as a challenge, and he determined to study Christianity and study the Bible so that he could go back to this business associate and blast him with arguments. He studied, first of all, creation and evolution. And he said, I studied the, 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 the cell and I came to see that there was no way a living cell evolved from nothing because it is too complex, called irreducible complexity. There are hundreds of machines, hundreds of processes that have to happen all at once for the smallest paramecium to exist. He said it was impossible. And then he said, I looked at the Bible. And being a statistician, he studied the Old Testament prophecies. He took 30 rather than the 40 that I've taken that he felt most reliable. And he assigned a probability for each one of those, a conservative probability of what they would be. And he said he, he calculated, and I'm not a statistician, but he calculated that the odds of fulfill, one person fulfilling all 30 of these possibility of these prophecies was 1 in 10, uh, was 10 to the 100, 110th power. Or, as he described it, he said it would be like buying a ticket for the lottery and winning and buying a ticket the next week and winning, and buying a ticket the third week and winning, and winning the lottery 15 weeks in a row. Or, he said it would be comparable to being struck by lightning 20 times in one year. The odds of someone fulfilling these prophecies would be, oh, well, I got struck by lightning. Well, it's never going to happen. Then you get struck 20 times in one year. Ralph Muncaster said he came to the point where he could not ignore the evidence. He wrestled with it. He struggled with it. And it's what started out to be a quest to argue against Christianity came to the point where one morning in the shower as the water was washing over him, he said, I can't fight it any longer. He knelt in the shower as the water was washing over him and said, Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Christ. I believe in you. I surrender my life to you. And Ralph and his wife and his three children were baptized as followers of Jesus Christ. No one can argue you into the kingdom 
It is a step of faith. It is a work of the Holy Spirit to cause you to be born again. But there is good evidence to take that step of faith. It is not a blind step of faith. And one of the things of evidence is that God, with amazing detail, has given us clues in the Old Testament to help us believe that Jesus, who we celebrate his coming in this season, is the Messiah, the Christ, the hope, the deliverer, the Savior of the world. And if you'll put your faith in him, your sins can be forgiven. You can be headed to heaven. You can have peace and joy regardless of the circumstances of your life. Would you do that today? Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord God, maybe there's somebody here like Ralph who's like a skeptic or not sure if there's anything beyond death or has had a lot of questions about the Bible. I pray that you would reveal to them by your Holy Spirit the amazing truthfulness and validity of the Bible confirmed by prophecy. And I pray based upon that that they might say, I take this step of faith to believe. Next Sunday when we have baptism, perhaps there's someone right here today who will be baptized next Sunday and join the four others who are being baptized that Sunday. Lord, I pray that right now you'd do a work of regeneration in their lives and bring them to salvation. If there are those of us whose faith has been weak, may we strengthen our faith. May we be able to tactfully defend our faith. May we be strong in our faith from attacks of those around us that we may have assurance and hope in you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand together with me? We're going to sing a song. And as we sing, you can walk forward if you want to confess your faith in Jesus. Just come and meet me here. There'll be a decision counselor who'll pray with you or answer any questions you have. Or we'll just rejoice with you if you're ready to to share your faith. You can be baptized next Sunday. That's not a good Sunday for you. You can be baptized at our next opportunity. Uh, If God's speaking to you, would you come? If you want to join our church, you can come in this time if you want to pray. Somebody be glad to pray with you about anything in your life. This is a time just to respond to what God's saying to you.
seat as we close just a couple of quick announcements uh, before we leave here this morning uh, if you missed it last night the adult worship choir did an incredible job they blew the speakers right off the stage um, they just did awesome last night Todd was up here dancing don't miss it if you can you know be here tonight at six it'll be great um, don't want to miss out on that if you haven't already brought your angel tree gift back. Uh, that's a perfect time to bring those last few gifts back here uh, tonight as well. Those are due today. Um, also, you can see several different events coming up, some middle school and high school parties this weekend, uh, senior adult party, kids stuff coming up next Sunday night is the kids uh, choir concert in here as well. So several events in here, a lot of important things going on. You can see we're still in the season of prayer and uh, giving for world missions, so don't miss out on that information as well. If you're a guest with us this morning, as you're exiting the doors, uh, you can head down to your left, and uh, our lead pastor, Dr. Cox, will be there, and he's got a small gift uh, for all first-time guests. Let me close this out in prayer. Father God, we thank you uh, just for the confidence that we can have in you and the assurance of our salvation uh, that we can have in you, uh, knowing that you are the Messiah, that you are the Christ, that you came and, and gave your life up for us. Uh, Lord, there's nothing we've done to deserve salvation. But God, you paid the sacrifice for our sin on the cross so that we could have new life, eternal life in you. Lord, we thank you for that sacrifice. Be with us this week, God. I pray that you help us to live in a way that, that honors you. Help us to faithfully communicate your love and truth to other people. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. One, two, three.